Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also a big fan of jazz. That is for real. And don't get me wrong, I also have thoughts on, you know, like cool music. Uh, for instance, I feel Drake's newest album, Scorpion, is his Drakiest album yet in like all the good ways and all the bad ways. It's like double mega Drake. It's just the maximum six. You know what I mean? Anyway, my earliest musical memories are of loving George Gershwin and Thelonious Monk and about a dozen trumpet players. And as I tried to find more artists to enjoy in jazz, that led me to look at the history of it and find out that the history of jazz is full of hilarious societal panic. Jazz is is so tame today that I need to follow up saying I like it by saying that I'm also cool, which is not a cool thing to do. But back in the day, it was so cool that well-to-do Americans feared jazz for all kinds of reasons. They thought it was too improvisational, too black, too sexual, too similar to the terrifying menace of ragtime music. And I say all that because my guest and I hope you realize that we are not jazz panickers about video games. My guest today is Jason Pargin, who writes for Cracked and for the New York Times bestseller list as David Wong, and our topic is sparked by his latest greatest column for Cracked. We're talking about how violent video games might be screwing with your brain. And if you don't play them, don't worry, because this episode is accessible to everyone. It's also about the most lucrative entertainment medium in America, video games. The top new titles make more than Avengers movies do, because millions of people play them. So even if you're not a gamer, I think you want to know know how the brains of people around you are affected by games. And if you do play, hey, there you go. You got a fully mind-blowing episode about the biggest American panic since the menace of jazz. Man, I like doing spooky voices. Anyway, please sit back or listen to this and then also play a video game while muted. That's actually one of my favorite ways to hear things, along with muting sports. Just a hot tip. Either way, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Jason Pargin. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. mainly drawing on an excellent column you did. It's called How Violent Video Games Might Be Screwing With Your Brain. Of course, it will be in the food notes. And it's also one of my favorite kinds of things that you write and other people on the site write where I think we're kind of looking at how everyone is wrong. Not, not to like dunk on them or something, but to pick out how people who are terrified of violent video games or completely fine with violent video games are kind of all incorrect in ways that are really surprising. Yeah. And to be clear off the top, we do not want to ban video games uh, or even restrict them or censor them or anything else. That's you can criticize the effects of a thing without simultaneously demanding that that thing be made illegal. (laughs) The effects that I'm going to talk about today, like with everything, it affects a minority of people. It is impossible to know how many. It's kind of the same way in that, you know, gambling is perfectly fine for most people. Most people do not get addicted, but there's a certain segment that that do. And so you talk about it. You try to look at the mechanism that's involved And here. Whenever there's some sort of a mass shooting or some other terrible event, as one side talks about like regulating guns, invariably someone comes back and says, well, no, it's not the guns. It's the violent 
video games this guy was playing that caused him to to shoot up his high school. It's such a specific cause they pick out too. Not not that it is the cause, but it's such a. I, whenever I hear that, it, it feels very out of left field to me. Still, even though people have been saying it for decades now. Since games have been capable of rendering like violence on screen that you can recognize. So going back to like 1990 or somewhere around there, that's how long you've yeah. been hearing these games are making kids kill. Now, there is no scientific evidence that playing violent video games makes you do violence in real life or makes you imitate the violence you saw on the screen. So let's get that out of the way right off the top. That's not the case we're going to be making. It doesn't even make intuitive sense that playing a violent video game would make you want to do that in real life because those two experiences have no relation to one another. If you've ever spoke to a combat veteran and asked them, was your experience just like Call of Duty? Usually they'll say no. It bore, it, it bore very little resemblance to that. Because one involved right. you sitting on in the comfort of your sofa in air conditioning with a controller in your hand, and in the other, you were running for your life, and you were very hot and sweaty, and you were terrified, and people were trying to kill you, and your, your body was in physical danger. So to say that one of those experiences would make you want to do the other one has always been nonsense. And there's been studies, even some that claim to show correlation, we'll get into that in a bit. My argument is that while that does not appear to be true or even seems like it's possible to be true, I think there are other possibly negative consequences that games, and specifically violent games for reasons we'll get into, do change you in certain ways. Absolutely. And I and also it might be worth making a brief pit stop in case people aren't familiar with the gaming-oriented writing that you do for the site, because you've done tons, and it's great, like covering the new developments out of E3 and things like that. Uh, what's your experience with video games? Like when you talk about the experience of playing them, uh, what experiences are you talking about? Yeah, I've been playing games since I was five years old, so that would be since the year 1980. The first console we had in the house was Pong, we had an Atari 2600 <laughs> and the Nintendo Entertainment System and a Super Nintendo Entertainment System and a Nintendo 64 and a PlayStation and every oh, well, pretty you, much every console you since started then. on the most violent game there is like you're an outlaw <laughs> right. like come on cuz you Louise. what you imagined when you were playing Pong was that a cinder block was being smashed between two people's <laughs> faces <laughs> it's just that it couldn't render that on screen. You had to see it in your mind and you had to like make the little screams. <laughs> and I own all three major consoles now and I have, I can game on my PC. So I'm not coming at this from afar. I've, the last game I played was God of War. Um, and then the one before that was Far Cry 5. Between those two games, I've, probably killed 5,000 human beings and another maybe 2,000 uh, various demons and demigods and other supernatural creatures that many of them were not attacking me at all. I just I just killed them for, for no reason because it's the only <laughs> thing that, that makes the, the headaches go away. I feel like it's a gaming experience that is relatively typical too. Like people who play games have, of, have often played 
a ton of them if they've played console games anyway. Like there are people who just casual game or something like that, which is when they play on their phones or tablets. Uh, and that's fine. That's great. But these console games, I feel like there are very few people who go out and get a console, just try God of War, and then never pick up their controller again. And most of the games targeted toward people like me, console gamers, PC gamers, these primary interaction with the world is through combat. And I'm not just talking about yeah. war games. I'm saying if you pick up, I've got Mario Odyssey here too, you're stepping on the mushroom people and you're bouncing off of, you're cartoonishly attacking things. So combat is sort of fundamental. Now, I think the majority of gamers these days are mobile gamers. A lot of those are just playing puzzle games. Those are terrible for different reasons <laughs> in, in the <laughs> sense to, that so many of them have addiction mechanics that are basically built to try to capture like the 1% of the players who are gambling addicts and get them to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for extra lives because of the satisfaction of seeing the the numbers line up or whatever. But in terms right. of people like me, and especially you're talking about male gamers, it's or console gamers, like those, you'll get the best-selling games. You've got sports games, and you've got games based on combat. That's kind of just the way it is. So violence in video games is been there from the very, very start. When people think of sports, they almost always think of a ball. Like So many sports are based on balls, even though they don't necessarily have to be. I feel like combat is that for gaming. It's just There just will be a gun or a sword or something, or Mario's feet, like you said, that will be the main mechanic. Uh, sure. And just as sports in many ways were invented to be a substitute for warfare, or, you know, it's a chance to, like, fight in some sort of a like risk-free environment gaming kind of does the same thing it turns it into a sport you get a score for killing somebody you know and all the kids are playing Fortnite now and before that we're playing PUBG. but in those games it's a battle royale style where there's a hundred people in a circle and they've all got to kill each other and this has always been a thing in society where you've got some outlet for that that uh does not result in anybody being hurt unless in the case of like yeah. football it turns out later oh actually that that was very dangerous but we didn't <laughs> know at the time we thought it was better than people just you know fighting each other in parking lots right we only if we're totally unaware of it hurt each other in a gruesome way otherwise it's kind of a game and then as far as video games go, we've got a lot of science lined up here. I don't know what you want to get into first, but there's science about how it changes your brain and also how it, I think, changes your brain in unintuitive ways to someone who thinks that violent video games turn people into different people. Well, I try to address this in the order in which people raise objections. Like, I can anticipate usually what the arguments are going to be, and whenever the very old cranky moral crusader comes out and says see that school shooter played a game in which he used a gun just like this that made him shoot his classmates the immediate response to that is to simply say well that's ridiculous video games are fantasy games can't affect you at all in any way period why would playing a game have any impact on a person any more than watching a tv show or whatever and after all haven't moral crusaders been complaining about violent media since shakespeare's day or in the, you know comic books they had you know there was all sorts of panics over violence in comics and the escapism and all sort of that and those people are always proven to be wrong always they're always on the wrong side of history but 
To say that you can do something, anything for several hours a week and that it does not affect your brain in any way is just as unscientific as the guy saying shooting a gun in a game makes you want to shoot a gun in real life. Anything you do, whether it's playing a video game, we've got a, I've got a link here that we can put in the footnotes that musicians' brains are very different from yours or mine. Playing music has a specific effect and, you know, somebody plays music several hours a day, it shows. We have featured in cracked articles before a study that they did on London cab drivers and specifically them because that job required them prior to GPS, it required them to memorize all 25,000 streets in the city. That process of spending eight or 10 hours a day memorizing geographic locations over and over again, that repetition, it, you can cut open their brain and say, hey, that's the brain of a cab driver. And I, I don't know if people know that cultural phenomenon, too, of just London cab drivers, where it, there was a time when to be a cab driver in London, you had to take a, it's almost like an advanced graduate school type exam before you could be licensed to be a cabbie because you had to know every one of the streets, many of which were laid out by like old kings in an unintuitive way. And so it's a very, very advanced body of knowledge. And that's amazing that we can see the the impact by examining their heads. Sure. And if this sounds too weird to anyone listening, try picking up a musical instrument that you've never played before and attempt to play a song on it. Then spend 10 years learning that instrument and come back and play the same song. You'll notice it sounds different. That's because your brain has done something called learning, which is literally <laughs> rewriting neural pathways in your brain to make it physically different. You have physically changed your brain so that your fingers can now operate that uh, glass harmonica or whatever instrument you, theremin, whatever instrument you chose. You can now operate it. That's what learning is. So I love your it, go-to instruments. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that must, so I'm just looking around my room for objects. So, so if repetition of a task can make you great at it, then repetition of anything can change how your body is more able to do it, wants to do it. Like you can get addicted to certain repetitive motions. This is something you really do know. It's not, this is not controversial. The idea that if you spend several hours a week doing a thing, whatever that thing is, you start to train yourself to do it. And likewise, people who are pro video games will happily share links. And I've got some here. We can also share in the footnotes about how games t improve hand-eye coordination, which makes perfect sense. They teach problem solving also makes sense. They can even help you learn social skills, especially a multiplayer game where you've got to cooperate. All of that makes perfect sense because, again, you're having to repeat tasks thousands and thousands of times, even in the course of one play session, right? Like if you've, if you've got a violent game where you're going around hacking and slashing, how many times do you swing the sword in a game like God of War where I've got to get the timing down? I've got to be able to parry and then come back and do a counter strike. Like getting that timing down in the course of one couple of hours playing, I probably had to do it three or four thousand times. You could see yeah. my brain going to work on that problem if you if you scanned it while I was playing it. That did not make me go out into the world with a giant axe and try to find demons to slay because 
the feeling of swinging an axe in real life works completely different muscles and bears no resemblance to what I did on screen. Right. My belief is that playing those games a lot in certain people exacerbates certain personality traits and specifically lowers impulse control and frustration tolerance. Because also the even the mechanic of it is very pleasurable to do but like you say it doesn't connect with actually swinging an axe in life but swinging an axe in a game it's toward a specific goal it's toward a very concrete objective there's a great book called reality is broken by jane mcgonigal where she talks about the basic idea of using games to enact positive changes in your life because game mechanics are just more enjoyable to be in than the mechanics of actual life. Like there's a game called Chore Wars that makes you better at doing chores in life because it's been turned into a game and we that's fun. But it seems like you could just as easily say if games can be this concretely good in somebody's life, they could be concretely bad too. Yes. And I dream of a future in which a lot of things, a lot of positive behaviors could be gamified in some way. Right now, we have a society that kind of rewards a lot of the wrong behaviors, and we'll get into that too. I mentioned earlier, I said I would address some of the studies that claim to have shown that games like can make kids more violent. Most of those are really easily debunked because what they did was they would have some kids sit down and play a game, a violent game, just some game based on combat. And you know, in the one I've linked here, they had a they had two groups: one that played a realistic game where you were fighting human shapes, and then one that was more cartoonish, where uh, you were throwing strawberries at a bunny rabbit or something. I don't. What I just <laughs> described is it would actually be more upsetting to me than fighting a person. But <laughs> <laughs> but what they what they typically do is they would let the kids play the game, get really hyped up and really into the heat of it, and then they would immediately test them with like, would they harm another child? <laughs> so I guess they would like bring a child in off the street and say like, okay, we'll give you a dollar to go punch this child right in the face. And then the kids who had been keyed up playing the violent game, even the cartoonish game, were more likely to do it. I, for the people listening, I think what they did was they, they told them that they could play a very loud noise that would like blast in the ears of a kid elsewhere, but they didn't actually do it. Because you can, you can actually go to jail for abusing a child, even for science. Yeah, now, anyway. Like right, before, now. sure, go for <laughs> right. it. The whole history of psychology is like littered with crimes, but, but now, no, can't do it. That could be another episode, because, yeah, they used to be very cavalier, especially with kids they would find in, like, orphanages, where it's like, hey, nobody wants these kids. It's let's <laughs> let's uh, it's fair game. Let's see how they react to, uh, let's see how much trauma they can take. Um, but anyway, so what they found was interesting in that the kids who had played the violent game were more aggressive in those situations, but... One, there was no difference between the ones who had played a realistic game and the one that had played the cartoonish game. So the mechanic of like connecting what was happening on screen with what happens in the real world wasn't the thing that made them act. And then the effect, too, the effect, it doesn't last very long. If you bring those kids back the next day, they're not still ready to, to abuse the, the orphans. 
So all that you're getting there is the same effect that would cause a shoving match to break out during a basketball game. You know, people, your adrenaline's pumping in the heat of competition or you get frustrated when you lose, you know, your character dies. And so, yeah, they react a little more strongly, but that's it. Any other long-term study that tries to connect like habitual gaming to crime immediately falls apart once you apply the confounders, things like the fact that, you know, Certain socioeconomic groups tend to spend more time gaming. Kids who don't have a lot of friends play a lot of solo gaming. You know, they also tend to have more whatever antisocial behaviors. Like once you try to eliminate everything else, you never find a correlation between people who, you know, who were fine before and then they played a violent video game and then became violent. If anything, you may have a kid who is fascinated by violence and blood and stuff anyway. And because of that, they were drawn to certain gory games. But even there, you've got a situation where it their interest predated the game. The game didn't, you know, introduce them to those to those things. Yeah, and it seems like also what they're trying to measure is almost impossibly longitudinal, I think would be the word for it. Like they're trying to measure something that would play out over someone's entire life for so many hours. Like I'll read about a new game and it'll say, oh, this game is is 100 hours of entertainment or 200 hours of entertainment. And if they're trying to measure, do games make kids more violent? They basically need to monitor somebody forever all of the time, like to see all the time they play games and then all the times they are in a situation where they could be violent. And so these other studies where they just sit kids down for a couple hours, I don't know how that would actually tell them anything, as you say. And you also have to control for what their home situation is like, what their relationship (laughs) is with their peers, how many friends they've got, uh, are their friends violent, what books they're reading, what movies they're watching. Like trying to isolate it down is nearly impossible and my theory that we're going to dig into as we go along is also impossible to prove (laughs) i'm going to make my case (laughs) i'm going to show the data that we do have but in terms of like for me the final like trump card for anyone who says violent video games are ruining our kids remember doom the first mainstream first-person shooter, the one that was hugely popular, like like Wolfenstein predates it, but Doom is the one that really put that type of game on the map, where you are the man behind the gun and blood comes out when you shoot. That came out in 1993. Go, don't take my word for it, go on the internet and look for a line graph of violent crime in America from 1993 until today, and it has dropped like a rock. In all categories. I would not claim that video games cured violent crime, but it has been floated as one of the possibilities, not because necessarily that a killer would be satisfied with virtual killing for the same reasons I addressed, but simply for the fact that it keeps the killer at home in their bedroom. <laughs> they, they're just not, they're not outdoors where they can get to victims. They're, they're being kept like a big reason for the drop in crime is just the kids tend to stay home. Whereas if you're out in the park, you're going to get in fights and you've got just more opportunity to encounter 
people you're going to conflict with. Where if you're if you encounter that real life enemy in Fortnite, you know you can kill them in Fortnite. You can send them you know some homophobic slurs over the chat thing, but that's it. You've been kept at a distance, and then your anger will subside. Whereas if you had encountered that same guy playing a game of cards or on a basketball court or in the park or whatever people do in real life, when you're personally there, that's where fights can break out, knives can come out, guns can come out. So it may be as simple as it just keeps them on the sofa. Yeah, and you can even tie most of the other landmark violent games to that same crime timeline. Like I think of GoldenEye 007 as being that first multiplayer shooter, like that first one where you and your friends are shooting each other. And that came out in 1997, according to my rapid Googling. And so that's just about that same 1993 Doom timeline. Like maybe people were hitting each other on the arm or being mad somebody picked odd job, but it doesn't seem like it created a nationwide crime spree in the way that you would think video games would if they make people wildly more violent. Yeah, and Goldeneye was the first game that I ever played where I could kill people who clearly were non-combatants because you would show up, there'd be like scientists standing around because there's that level where you're in like <laughs> the missile silo, and but yeah. you could shoot the scientists or you could plant a bunch of proximity mines at their feet and then detonate them and blow them into the, into the air. That was the first game where I could do that, but again, I don't feel like that ever made me want to kill a scientist in real life. Yeah, and that's also so accurate to the movie franchise, of which I had seen like 20 movies by the time I finally played GoldenEye, so that that was an influence on me too. But that does lead to another separate issue that is not necessarily the one I want to bring up, but it is one other people have brought up that I don't necessarily have an opinion about, which is... Can violent games, if they don't make kids engage in real-life violence, can they indoctrinate kids into gun culture or just like pro-war views in general? If your experience with war is sitting on your sofa and watching a news story about it, and you're trying to have an opinion about whether or not this war is good or whether or not we should go do it. If your experience with war is in a video game where it's all very fun and badass and bloodless, does that by possibly make you more pro-war in your views? Yeah, and that seems almost as hard to study as the basic violence in your brain from games element too, because... There's so many controlling factors that get into it. Like, like the reasons people join the military or vote for a more pro-war government are every reason. There's so many. It could be money. It could be upbringing. It could be their family. You never know. Well, and plus the culture as a whole has been glorifying war since for as long as there's been a mass media. Like if they didn't have the games to make war seem cool, they have literally every single action movie ever made where as we've pointed out in previous episodes even the ones that are about how war is bad makes the war part look super cool like it's it's very yeah. exciting to watch and of course the sheer fact that you're not in danger when experiencing it so all you get to see is the explosions and the cool hardware it just will always be appealing to, especially to young males, where we, we just gravitate toward that sort of thing, partly because we're trained to, maybe partly for biological reasons. But 
So even if you could try to separate out, like, is is the gaming demographic more war-friendly than what they should be in terms of their opinions or how they vote? How do you separate that? Because, again, where you find these days, where you find young males, you generally find gamers and you generally find people who play games based around combat. So the question would be then, yeah. well, are they playing those? Are they pro-war because they played those games or are they playing those games because they think war looks cool? It seems like one thing that speaks to it being maybe the latter where just war is cool. So that's why it's games is that in the past, the U.S. military has tried to get into developing video games that make war look cool. And the overall progression of the history of that led toward People just want violent games anyway, whether or not the military is pushing on it. As we researched this, I found out that the military has been developing combat video games since the Super Nintendo system. They built this game, Multipurpose Arcade Combat Simulator, or Max, and they built it in 1993 for the Super Nintendo. And it lets you use different guns and do target practice. And then there's a piece in The Atlantic that references a book called Warplay by Corey Mead from 2013. And it talks about how real game companies build such good first-person shooters that at this point, the military just like provides some funding and some rights to be able to use actual military guns and vehicle skins and stuff like that in exchange for companies making just a slightly more realistic version of the games they already wanted to make. Like by the time the military was making the game America's Army, which is a military-made shooter that is supposed to get you excited about the military, they went ahead and used the Unreal Engine, which was built by Epic Games, not the military, and mostly just kind of leaned on an existing huge demand for military games that exists with or without any sort of propaganda or tax spending or anything like that. The funny thing is, is like, I don't think there's anything the military could put into a game in terms of like propaganda that would move the needle. Like there's plenty of games that get into where um, you're being betrayed by some rogue element of the CIA or you're put kind of on you know, the wrong side of a conflict or, or where America's intervention is shown to be a bad thing. The fundamental issue is that it just games and all media will always make war look noble and cool and manly and masculine. It will make you feel badass. I don't know that there's any way around that. I don't think it's helping I don't think anyone's effectively made a game that that gives people like a more sober realization of what war is like. But but I don't know in that case, it's not totally clear to me that the interactivity of it would have more of an effect than just watching a movie about it or a TV show. And it's the interactivity part that sets games apart and makes them more powerful in how they affect you. And the bit that I'm going to talk about later that I think it does do, it's based entirely on the interactivity. If if it doesn't make the U.S. military look cool, it definitely makes guns look cool. It definitely makes shooting look cool, makes gunfights look like fun, and it you know it certainly makes it all look great just to, to look at, to visually, like, you know, the main character is always handsome, and he looks great shooting his guns, and that probably will always be true, I guess. Like you say, there's nothing the military could put in a game that would change that basic element of being in a game and 
doing the combination of things where you shoot someone. Like it doesn't really matter all that much if the context is like United States military or space Marines on some crazy planet or something. Either way, it's the virtual act of shooting someone with a gun. And we also, I feel like we don't have a ton of case studies in terms of American wars after video games got really good. Like we can't go back and look at the people drafted into Korea or something like that. But there's a book called Generation Kill by the journalist Evan Wright, and he followed soldiers who were in sort of the first wave in the second Iraq war. Uh, He's following them in the few weeks. They're basically constantly on the move. Like they never stop and play video games or something. They're invading a country. But he said that as he got to know soldiers who were going through real-life combat, they super weren't able to handle the difficulties of it. I mean, they they handled it as best they could, but games did not make it easier. Uh, There's a quote from it, which is uh, here. Quote, what I saw was a lot of them discovered levels of innocence that they probably didn't think they had. When they actually shot people, especially innocent people, and were confronted with this, I saw guys break down. The violence in games hadn't prepared them for this. End quote. And that makes... Total sense to me. Like I, I am not surprised that video games that turn shooting people into a game element, a low stakes thing, a task that is so different from shooting a human being for whatever reason. I, I can see someone's brain having an extra hard time dealing with it. Or if you've ever like been babysit- babysitting a kid who's like a Pokemon fan, and if you thought, well, they like Pokemon so much, I bet they would love like this dog fighting ring that they <laughs> that goes on in my town if you take them to it and you see how upset they get you realize oh so the reality of having like animals attack each other it's apparently different from what they do in their in their on their game boy we've written on the site about games and gun culture because uh, we wrote an article about guns me and um Jack O'Brien, former editor-in-chief, before he abandoned us a year ago. Uh, That article is called Five Mind-Blowing Facts Nobody Tells You About Guns. But we kind of addressed a bunch of things in the gun debate that never get brought up. And one of them was the fact that real gun companies were sponsoring video games to get real models of guns and real gun accessories in the game. And then doing cross-promotion for like, hey, here's where you can buy that that real gun. Which we thought was weird because, you know, car companies do this with racing games, you know, because you want to race a real Lamborghini, not some fictional car they made up. So here's a game where in the game you're using this M4 or a a Bushmaster or whatever variety of AR-15 they've got to go raid like a terrorist compound and shoot several hundred people that you know then the other people you're shooting are other players manning those people so then the gun company is like hey if you enjoy doing that then maybe you would enjoy really owning our gun and so our point was like (laughs) what's the connection they want the players to draw in terms of it's again it's not that they're going to take that gun and perform a mass shooting with it or try to imitate what they saw in the game it's are they selling them on an idea of what these guns can do like the illusion of what an assault rifle can do in terms of defending your home or whatever like it just the idea that the that the guns are toys like are they feeding an unhealthy 
idea of what guns are and how we should look at them. And that, again, is something where it's not been studied. I, I don't know how you would study it, but it's something that I think the vast majority of people have no idea even goes on. Yeah, and I think part of why they don't know is it's at least a little bit under the table. Like we've got an article here from Eurogamer in 2013, and it's called Shooters, How Video Games Fund Arms Manufacturers by Simon Parkin. And he does kind of a history of guns and games. And for one thing, I didn't know until I read it that the guns in GoldenEye are all made up. Like there wasn't quite a relationship yet. But in the years after that, uh, arms manufacturers got in touch with video game makers and started trading them the right to put guns in the games. And when he investigates it, every gaming company he talks to, Electronic Arts, Activision, Codemasters, Crytek, Sega, and Sony... All of them won't comment on it at all. But then when he talks to the gun makers, they all comment on it and are extremely willing to say what's going on. He talks to a guy at Barrett who says, it's absolutely the same as with cars and games. We must be paid a royalty fee, either a one-time payment or a percentage of sales, all negotiable. Typically, a licensee pays between 5% to 10% retail price for the agreement, but we can negotiate on that. Blah, 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 blah. There are like actual standing agreements for a real gun to appear in a game because at least one person plays that game and then purchases the gun in life. If you've ever watched a lot of streams of guys who play shooting games, you know, the vast majority of these people have never owned a gun in real life. But just through their experience of playing many, many, many games like Call of Duty or Rainbow Six or any of the realistic shooters, they, the first time they turn a game on, when they pick up a gun on the ground, they know what that gun can do because that gun was not invented for that game. It's like, yeah. this is a Heckler and Cock MP5. It, it, you know, it's got a 30 round magazine. It's nine millimeter. It's going to be, I need to get a little bit closer range wise. Um, it's got this rate of fire. They know automatically the difference between that gun and an AK-47, which is going to be a heavier round, better range, but, you know, it's it will be harder to aim or whatever. Like, they know how these guns handle and what they can do because they're real games that have been inserted into the game world complete with brand, you know, yeah. and, and the exact model. And then when you earn accessories like holographic sights, those are real accessories you can buy off the shelf. So it is weird <laughs> if nothing else it's again not we're not making a judgment about again on this podcast for those of you who this is your first episode like i own multiple guns and probably always will i don't think alex owns any firearms i'm pretty sure i have never held a firearm even i don't, yeah. I don't think i've even touched one i grew up shooting i've you know i fired an ar-15 i i've you know, I fired many semi-automatic handguns. Uh, so to me, like the idea of guns existing is not scary. The idea of someone thinking of a gun as a toy is very scary because statistically that is the greater danger, even to the mass shootings, which are huge news events, but statistically are blips. But people buying a gun because it's cool or because it's fun, because it's just something to collect and it's neat to look at and it makes you feel manly, that's where you just you now have a gun sitting around the house that you probably are not storing securely. You probably are not keeping it away from kids. 
and when it comes time to use it for something that you think you need to use it for, you know, like self-defense or you think you're going to use it when a burglar comes in the house. It's one of those things where it's so much more likely to go wrong if you don't truly understand what a gun does and how to handle it and how dangerous it is and what happens to the bullet when you miss somebody specifically that it keeps traveling for about two miles until it hits something like that attitude I think is legitimately dangerous and legitimately indefensible. I can't see how anyone thinks none of these games are teaching you to use guns in a responsible way. They're teaching you to shoot the gun as you jump off of a rooftop at, with where you've played gold night where you've got an AK 47 in each hand and you are dual wielding and you're shooting both of them as you jump off of a waterfall in real life, that's actually a very dangerous activity to do. You could convince me that that is statistically harmless in terms of the number of people who are actually injured or killed by firearms versus people who never played games. You could easily convince me that it's not a, a statistically significant danger. You will not convince me that it is an improvement over 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 like some sort of a healthy attitude of look guns are very dangerous they are very difficult to use if you're not standing five feet away from the person you know the odds of you hitting the person behind them or someone 10 feet to their right are very high and the odds of you using that gun to kill yourself are many, many times higher than you ever using it to kill an intruder. Those are all things that you're not going to get out of a game. So if we think that part of the problem in this country is gun culture and our attitude toward guns and our, our thinking of guns as harmless and fun, there I think you would have a legitimate beef with how games portray them, and I never hear that argument. I just never hear that complaint because the same stodgy old people who want to blame video games for mass shootings do not see guns or attitude towards guns as a problem. So if I were to come back to that cranky old person and say, hey, you're right. It's the game that actually got this person's gun fetish started. We should have made it harder for them to buy all of those guns. They'd be like, "Whoa, whoa, there, partner! Let's uh, let's not get too let's not get too crazy." It was it was the game with a digital depiction of an AR-15 that was the problem, not the actual AR-15 that this 18-year-old with a history of of depression and you know, domestic violence was able to buy. Well, I mean, I'm thinking now about games I played with guns and I'm like, how do you as the character acquire a gun? Like 99 times out of a hundred, it is finding it on the ground. Like there's not even there. Uh, there We're far from any game having like a mini game where you securely store a gun or something. But basically every video game gun is found on the ground. And then when you're done with it, you discard it like litter. Like, that's crazy. That is a, it is insane that that's the mechanic of guns and games. But then at the same time, we have this intense realism of real guns with their real capacities being what you use. It, it really jumps out to me. But also these are guns that cannot jam, that you never have to clean, that don't, they don't have a safety on them. It's the most fanciful and painless version of actually using a gun if you ever take somebody shooting 
the first thing they're shocked to find out is the noise a gun makes. It's a sound that <laughs> physically hurts your ears. Like it's startling. You're holding something that is an incredibly violent piece of machinery and it usually hits them all at once when they hear it. <laughs> but And also the fact that if you're not ready for it, that the gun will try to jump out of your hand. The recoil, it, it's, it will try to jump away from you. It, that shocks people. I see people drop guns first time they try to shoot one because they didn't realize they did that because in a video game, they kind of don't. And if there's one thing I've learned from James Bond, all you need to do is put a silencer on it and then it just makes like a little poot sound, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Folks, we want you out there to be comfy. We want you to feel good. And that's why this show is brought to you by Mac. Weldon. They have smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping to get yourself the best shirts and underwear that you'll maybe ever wear, along with lots of other clothes that you need. I've used it myself, and here's the thing. You can get some really nice underpants, some really nice shirts. Even better, they have this thing where if you don't like your first pair of the underwear, you get to keep it and they will refund you, no questions asked. I have not shopped like that before. I have not gotten to purchase a product, be like, mm, not for me, and keep it and get the money. It's incredible. And they do that because they're that confident in what they make, and they're that confident that you will like it a whole lot. The website's also very easy to use, and they've got everything from underwear, which is maybe what you know Mac Weldon for, to jackets, to socks, to shirts. It's all great, and it's all right there. And we have a deal for you. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code CRACKED at checkout. That is MacWeldon, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. And to enter promo code CRACKED, C-R-A-C-K-E-D, you can read it right off the logo. Enter that at checkout for 20% off your first order. We have gone through a list of things that we think games do not do and things that we don't know what they whether or not they do. Again, the last two attitudes toward war, attitude towards guns, I don't even know how you would measure it. Because even if you get different responses in a survey, again, if you tracked like gun purchase records versus hours spent playing games with that gun, okay, yeah, but then did this person use it irresponsibly? Did they and if they did is it possible they would have done it anyway? Like, were they drawn to the game because they were already fascinated by the guns? These are things that it's extremely difficult to study. This is one reason why we really don't know anything about human beings or how they work. <laughs> because it's, <laughs> oh, hard, no. it's hard to study. There's too many factors. So with that, I'm going to make my case. My assertion, based right. on my own experience and based on studies I've been reading over the years is that games and specifically violent games for reasons I'll get into ruin our attention span in a very specific way. And I think they degrade our ability to tolerate frustration. But Jason, life is full of frustration. What do I do with that? <laughs> if you get the sense that on the internet, people might seem a little bit more irritable than what they should be. Like, if it seems like they're really quick to fly into a rage over the dumbest little thing, I believe this is one factor in modern life that has fed this. 
And I, we will build a case here. Again, I, I can feel the resistance of people listening to this because no one who games for as a hobby ever wants to hear this. And I certainly don't. But this is, I am not an expert. This is the, the claim I'm going to try to support. So there are a lot of studies out there that say that games reduce impulse control in some kids. But that, as far as I can understand, is pretty well supported. The reason is the addictive loop that makes violent games so appealing, or another way to say it is the reason so many games rely on combat as the central mechanic, and the reason it's so satisfying, is because it creates a loop that's basically three steps. Here's a thing that's blocking your progress. You will click a series of buttons to make that thing disappear. And here's a satisfying animation to celebrate your success. That can be as simple as here's Mario. Here's a cartoon mushroom guy. You step on his head. He flattens out. You get a little coin as your reward and you move on. Or it can be a hyper realistic game in which you are fighting on a beach on D-Day And you've got to get your freaking sniper rifle and take out the Nazi, the hyper-realistic Nazi in the machine gun nest so that your people can advance. But if you just put a camera on my hands and then hooked me up to a brain scan, it would come down to the same thing. I've encountered an obstacle that's blocking my way forward. I've hit a series of buttons. Either I've jumped or I've pulled a trigger or I've aimed and pulled a trigger If it's a fighting game, I've punched the guy several times and then the obstacle disappears. It falls over dead. It's there. It has some animation that's satisfying. It will, the guy will blow to pieces, you know, blood will splatter or money will fly out of him. Or there's some games where you can like, you can like kill a zombie and then the zombie had like $4 on it. And it's like, why did the zombie... (laughs) They, or or you can like kill a snail and like gold shoots out of it. It's like, why did this snail have so much gold? <laughs> like, where was it going? Was it going into town to like buy like something? Yeah. You, you feel bad, but it's it's a, it's a very simple loop that in the course of playing a game, you will experience thousands of times in a session, tens of thousands of time times in a week, and over a lifetime of gaming tens of millions of times like going back to you know when i was five years old you know every game that they started making where you've got a little cartoon cowboy and you've got to shoot the obstacle or whatever you shoot the bad guys you can keep scrolling the screen screen to the right from there until now the number of times i've repeated that loop in my brain i've had to have repeated it 20 million times, 30 million times. I don't know. And it's probably worth saying that that celebrations, even in completely nonviolent games, like I'm thinking of anybody who had a windows computer in the nineties has played solitaire and then gotten those water falling cards at the end. You didn't kill anybody, but you get congratulated by every game you play, no matter how garden variety. Uh, Right. And, and and software, like it's well established now how to make software turn on the reward centers in the human brain. Casinos work this way. You know, their slot machines now are not physical machines. They're just video games. They've just got a screen 
and the way they yeah. animate light up those are things that there's a science behind it that it makes part of your brain light up like oh i did something i did something good to suggest that someone like me specifically someone like me i am someone who has had from childhood on anger management problems and some attention problems i am not uncommon in america or in the modern world for that but there's no question i also had that to suggest that someone like me who already had this negative personality tendency that this was not exacerbated by these 20 million repetitions of obstacle push a few buttons obstacle disappears i think would be ridiculous and I think this has degraded my ability to tolerate frustration and obstacles in my real life to the point that I experience extreme anger very, very quickly whenever I encounter something that doesn't move or when I do what should be the right series of steps and it doesn't work because in the game, see, it always works. Like once you've got the pattern down, that's the deal games make with you. If we've established that jumping on the mushroom kills the mushroom, Nintendo is not just going to throw in a mushroom that kills you. It would have a different enemy right. and it makes the deal. No, if it's got a shell on its back, it doesn't work. If it's got spikes, it doesn't work. But once it's established those rules, they always work. And there is always, always a way to overcome the obstacle. Again, unless the game's just broken. <laughs> but, but that's also the deal games make. If you enter a locked room, there's a way out of that room. And if you encounter a, an enemy, either you can kill him or else you can get past him. But it always plays fair. And real yeah. life doesn't. In real life, if someone is annoying you or they're not... <laughs> or they're blocking your progress in some way, that person may still be blocking your progress at your funeral. <laughs> like they, 60 years later, they could still, but it's a specific type of instant gratification that I think is the degrades your problem solving in this very specific way in the, in the sense that it at work, or online, or just if you're on Twitter, somebody disagrees with you, the impulse to make that person go away, I think is trained into us as opposed to I've got to reconcile with this person or I've got to compromise or I've got to just ignore them. The idea that no, they've got to be, I have to knock this obstacle down I think is something that is trained into us by gaming and that specifically people that are very susceptible to, uh, to like anger problems. People kind of get addicted to anger and confrontation the way I do. I think that it's very, very bad for those, those type of people. I do not know what percentage of the population we are. I just know that I seem yeah. to encounter a lot of them. And I, and I recognize elements of that in myself, too. Like, I, I find in my own life, if I get angry, it will sometimes be because I feel that I handled someone or a situation exactly the right way, and it still didn't work. And I, I grew up playing a lot of games. Like, that could be a contributing factor to that 
uh, mental schema, like that approach to how life should work. The obvious objection would be that it sounds like this is a contradiction because I just said earlier that on-screen violence doesn't translate to real-world violence because they don't feel the same at all. So why would an on-screen confrontation translate to something you encounter in everyday life? My response is that today, everyday interaction has been gamified via social media. The entire appeal of social media is that it gamifies social interaction. You can post your baby photos on Facebook and you see how many likes they get, and that is a score. If a restaurant screws up your order, you can go on Yelp and you can hit them with a review and it lowers their score. You can see the effect of it. You can take action on a screen that makes your, that hurts your enemies. People who make you mad can be blocked. You can make them disappear from Twitter. The same as you can make the little mushroom guy disappear in Mario by jumping on his head. You can click a little thing and that person is now gone from your universe. There's no difference in terms of the experience, the physical experience between eliminating an annoying person in a video game or an annoying obstacle in a video game versus eliminating an annoying person in an email, over text, on Twitter, on Instagram, anything where you can block people, anything where you can mute them, anything where you can harass them into leaving the platform if you want to take it to another level. This came up a lot during Gamergate. That in as early as 2012, you had people writing articles, and again, we can include this link, talking about how they realized that they had gamified harassment because they were going back to their message boards and keeping a very specific score. That when you post some macro like owning the feminists, and you can see how many times it got retweeted. You can see how many likes it got on Reddit. You had these the Gamergate subreddits, and you could see your thing get pushed to the front page, and you owned the, the feminist and the SJWs. You can attach a score to it, and then their goal of whenever one of these women would speak out, trying to harass them off the platform and make them disappear from the platform, they would use gaming terminology, like this is the final boss. This is the one we've got to take down. You know, this is, they would refer to power levels, like, because it absolutely was a game to them. It was a game they were trying to win. They were treating it like a game. And then once that person had disappeared from the platform, hey, we've won. We've somehow won the debate by making their words not be on our screen anymore. Yeah. And it's certainly, even for people who don't know what Gamergate is, it ostensibly had some kind of roots in a fight between some game developers and reviewers, like one or two people in a fight and some old relationships or something like that. It mushroomed into a worldwide internet harassment phenomenon. So it definitely wasn't about that one fight. It was, like you say, about some kind of gamified element of harassing people off the internet mainly for their gender, which is not very nice, but I guess also plays into it being easy to gamify. Like you can see what gender they are and then 
play the game, even though this is real life and it's not a game. At no point did they ever see these these women as real people who they were harassing. Yeah. And it was another thing with any harassment campaign that has come since. They've got a specific method and they've got a way that they team up and there's a, a teamwork element of it and then they've got ways they can automate it and that will they can create bots that will retweet things or that will repost messages or spam someone's comment section they're all things that are you type this combination you hit this combination of buttons and it makes the enemy go away in the years since you can then look at how political discussions have been gamified because this, it turns out, was a Trump episode all along. There he is. <laughs> he was in they, the studio the whole time. Because they created a template by which, like the Donald Trump subreddit prior to the election, the Donald, their entire thing was they had found a way to game Reddit's algorithm. They had found a way to pin their posts and make it so that every post was automatically in a visible location on the front page of their subreddit where everyone could upvote it, and then that would push it to Reddit's front page. And they once they got the score to a certain level, it would go to the front page of Reddit, and they could watch the score go up even more, and then they would celebrate their score. It was 100% a game. The vast majority of them, and a lot of these kids... You should never mistake the Donald for Trump's actual voting base. A lot of those people were literally nine years old. Okay. They had no concept (laughs) of like what it would mean for the Supreme Court or abortion rights. It was purely a game because they knew that the people who owned Reddit and most of the people who browsed Reddit did not want those, the Donald posts on the front page. And so it was a game, getting it past the spam filters. When they changed the rules, they, they, they changed their techniques. But they would coordinate, and they would get together, and it was just this is what they did instead of playing Fortnite or whatever game they would have been playing in 2015. And so then you see how people treat it on Twitter where it's all – there's not people engaging with each other at all. It's all a matter of trying to get this person banned from the platform or get or boasting that you blocked them from the platform or the ones who like a lot of these guys uh, have they're funded by Patreon now. And so it's like competitive to see like how much money can we devote to our to our guy and it'll be he'll be making more per month than the, the liberal equivalent as long as there's a number attached to it and as long as they can interact with it from the safety of a keyboard behind a screen. If you could hook up their brains, the, the a brain for someone playing the game and a brain of someone sitting there trying to own the libs on Twitter, I would have to think it lights up the exact same centers. The, the ones that have to do yeah. with like the fight or flight response, the ones that have to do with competition, like the dopamine, like all of those pleasures centers that come with seeing the bad guy defeated and blown apart and eliminated and that obstacle knocked over, it has to light up in the same way when you see that, hey, my that I made this image macro that owns the libs and it's now gotten retweeted 15,000 times. Like whatever pleasure you get from seeing a high score in a game, it has to be the exact same feeling. And I would also imagine... 
hopefully at some point we make our politics better, you know, and these fights aren't happening, but these platforms will be a space where that game element continues to happen forever. Ever since I've had a Twitter account, it has always felt like leveling up every time my followers increase or when I became verified, that felt like I had accomplished something. And even on Reddit, I can, I opened it up right now and I mostly lurk. I don't post a lot, but I have a score. I have post karma of 374. Like it's a game. It's like I've scored a particular amount in Reddit. Some of you listening are ahead of me. Congratulations, I guess. But they're built to reward those exact centers you're talking about. I think no matter who's president, especially with this president, but it's well, something that it seems like will be intrinsic to it forever. The fact that the president joined that game on Twitter <laughs> <Yeah>. himself <laughs> is a big part of it because I think there was a chance that Twitter could have faded into obscurity. It, like the usage was leveling off in 2014 or so. And there were a lot of articles written about how it'll never be profitable. And then all of a sudden the future yeah. president is on there yelling at 12 year olds or, or whatever. And just in using it. The, <laughs> and I, I know I'm laughing about it because this is, this is how I cope, but he's using it the way all of us are using it. Like I just had the worst chicken from this restaurant. It was terrible. It's yeah. what happened to chicken in America. Like it, it, he's it, like in between announcing future policy priorities. It's just like, I can't believe Brett won on the bachelor. Terrible. <laughs> she picked the wrong man. Like it's <laughs> SNL was not that good last night is a thing the president broadcasts. It's crazy. Right. Right along right <laughs> alongside, you know, the next Supreme Court justice will overturn Roe v. Wade and you've you have to just take it you have to just take it all as one steady stream. And it is a, a form of, of madness, but that's secretly why we're doing this episode about video games in the middle of, of all this is because gamification of interaction like you think about like tinder and the gamification of dating where you can get a sense very clearly and numerically of how attractive you are that did not used to be a thing like you know you could once upon a time i think you could go your whole life without knowing whether you know how hot people on the other side of the planet thought you were it's clearly a profitable model in terms of being able to attach a score to things that previously did not have a score and being able to attach a numerical value to things that did not used to have a numerical value, like how yeah. many friends you have, how many acquaintances you have, how many people do you know, you know, like how many, how many women want to have sex with you? Like you can put a number to those things now and where you put a number to it, you now can have a score and where there is a score, all of the other elements of a game come into play, measuring yourself worth by that score, being able to compare yourself to other people, which is also something that was very nebulous when you tried to do it, uh, you know, unless you were measuring like income, but where now yeah. you can say, well, sure, I may be poor, but also this thing I wrote got read by 20 million people. So now I have a score other than money to measure my value, right? Or I'm both poor and I'm not creative, but according to this dating site, I'm also incredibly hot. There are right. all these ways you can now 
quantify everything in your life and again do it from the safety of a screen and there's that thing in china where they they want to build that social credit score that was that occurred in that black mirror episode that we all made fun of that apparently will just be a thing so china launched a social credit system in 2014 it's supposed to be nationwide by 2020 and uh, according to Wired.com, they say its ultimate goal is determining the trustworthiness of the country's 1.4 billion citizens. So, yeah, it's that Black Mirror with Bryce Dallas Howard. Well, there we go. Great. Yeah, t- which it is, on one hand, it is very Orwellian. On the other hand, it is the logical endpoint of it is generally better to quantify things than not. If you think you're overweight, it's better to buy a scale and find out. If you think you might have high blood pressure, please go get it checked. Don't don't estimate your own blood pressure. If you <laughs> if you think you you know your income, if I ask you like you know what your monthly bills are and you think ah, I don't know, they're uh, they're pretty high. Like that's a sign of trouble. You should have some sense of of what your rent is and things like that. In general, a society works better when you can quantify things. You, you, it just does. I could I could list incredibly stupid examples all day, but you know what I'm talking about. So the things that pr- previously we thought of as indefinable, like someone's value to society, <laughs> yeah. those are things that. It makes sense in the system for us to want to quantify it. It makes sense for us to want to be able to put a number to it, to put a number to how good of a person you are, how productive you are. Because just, you know, the way we've been doing it, just judging by how much money you make is often misleading. I've I've seen actually yeah. some rich people that were also bad. No. What? So in America? In some ways, it is natural to want this, but as you've seen, like now that we can rate every business, now that we can rate every doctor, right? You can go on a doctor and see on a five-star rating how good of a doctor they are. I actually think that's pretty cool. I want that. I want to be able to find out if like a hole-in-the-wall restaurant I'm about to go to, if it's got a bunch of one-star reviews because it makes everybody sick. That's great to have that where just, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think I would have had that. I would not have trusted that I could look up any professional I was about to use and find out what their rating is. Um, Once upon a time, if you wanted to hire a plumber, if you didn't have a friend to say, oh, yeah, you know, Johnson and Sons plumber there, they're really reliable. You were just praying that it wasn't. A scam. You were praying that they weren't going to unhook a bunch of your pipes and just charge you a bunch of money. Whereas now you can look up, you can look up that plumber. It's just a guy in his van. By God, he's got a rating online and you can put a number to his reliability. He is a 4.2. That is a natural thing. But where you have that, this thing of turning everything into a game and expecting life to work like a game to where if this plumber expresses a bad opinion on the internet and so i rally a bunch of my friends to go spam him with bad ratings to punish him Mm -hmm. you've now given me the ability to gamify me ruining this person's life in a way that doesn't pose any risk to me i can do it from the safety of a screen 
I can push a series of buttons to punish this person who bothered me. And that does seem like a problem that I hope won't just only become more of a thing. Even this, we're sort of aghast at China's social credit score system, but as far as I can tell, the name is a reference to regular credit scores, which you and I and everybody have for our finances and how we've spent them. And I assume credit scores like that exist because we have enough database power to track them for everybody. Are we just in a situation where every time we have more technology to track each other and rate each other, we are going to do it, and then there's another thing we have to accomplish? I just don't know. I mean, I would like to think that over time the culture adjusts to it. There will always be problems in your life and things in your life that are not instantly solved. And so, like, today I'm looking at Twitter and when they hear about a bad policy or a bad uh, nomination or whatever from Trump, it's like, oh, well, we've got no choice but to burn the whole system down. Because after all, the next election is a whole four months away. A lot of the great things that got accomplished, whatever you're referring to, whether it's the civil rights movement or abortion rights or the gay rights movement, people chipped away at those for decades. For decades without seeing progress. Right. They did it knowing that a lot of them knew they would probably die without ever having made it to the promised land. The ability to take on a difficult problem without encouragement, without that little digital coin that pops up and rewards you for having done what you just did to be able to stick with it. And I think psychologists call it grit, like the ability to stick <laughs> with a difficult task without getting a reward, without feeling it, but just being able to stay on it. That is maybe the most valuable single skill that exists in society because you can overcome a lot. Like, if you're not super talented at painting, but you have a super long attention span and you have a great tolerance for failure to the point where you're not discouraged, like it doesn't make you stop, to where you don't give up when it doesn't immediately look great and you can just stay on top of it and keep improving it and keep, you can make yourself into a decent painter or a decent anything. That skill yeah. to be able to bang your head against a brick wall until eventually some of the bricks start to fall away <laughs> trumps everything. And that is the ability that I feel like games give you a world in which you never have to do that. Games give you a world in which spending five hours on a problem is an unbelievably difficult problem. Where in the real world, a difficult problem may literally take the next 60 years and you may die having not seen it solved. Oh, and I was just going to say, I'm a big player of the Sid Meier's Civilization franchise where all of world history takes about 10 hours. Stone Age to space. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so if I'm right, if games and if the gamification mechanic that is so common, the here's something that's bothering you. If you press these certain buttons, that thing will go away. If I'm right that that degrades that ability even a little bit, then that's worth talking about. 
if I'm right in that it degrades that ability in just a certain population, then it's worth talking about because that's the thing that I have observed in myself that I, the way you find me now at age 43, I do not have a lot of tolerance for objects that don't work systems that don't work people who don't work. I think people don't immediately do what I asked them to do. I get upset really fast. Like I have an emotional response that is unreasonable. I should not have an anger response Mm -hmm. because something in my computer doesn't function or a piece of software doesn't work. Like it, it's not rational to get emotionally angry at a piece of software. That's not doing what I want it to do, but I do. And it gets worse with time. And I believe that what's happened is that when I would encounter something in real life that was difficult, my therapy was to escape into games. And I think I've seen this in my friends that the people who would play world of Warcraft, they disappeared in world of Warcraft because their day job sucked, but they disappeared into a world in which problems are easily solved and in which effort is immediately rewarded. And you can see yourself level up. Yellow light shoots out of your body when you level up. Whereas in real life, If you're just exercising and you're trying to get fit, you're never going to get that yellow light moment. You may start to see like slight difference in definition in your arms after months of effort. But whereas in a game like that same progress, you could get in a few hours. So I feel like people who encounter difficult problems they can't solve in life, for instance, a dead end job with no apparent way forward. The temptation is, is to always escape into games where everything is given to you with if you just follow the rules and you apply the right steps. The more you escape into that, the harder it is to address the real life thing because it's never going to give you the same level of feedback and the same level of satisfaction. And I think it makes people less able to handle not just frustration, but discouragement. Just lack of progress? I'm so glad you bring up fitness, too, because that is one where we talked about how this gamification can be positive. I know people who have Fitbits. I don't have one myself, but their Fitbit will do that exciting level up thing when they hit their step count for the day. Or I know somebody who they track their overall um, heart rate. And it it measures it and tells them like, oh, you've gone from average to a rating called average to good. Like you you did it. You get like a level up and a yellow light. And again, these games can be so positive for that. And at the same time, I know I have played games to not think about troubles. It seems like in general, maybe awareness is the solution to this, or at least the practice to come out of the episode with and go into life with, because all these games are things that we choose for ourselves. They're things that we, we have a mental diet of these various games. And it seems like knowing how they hit your brain is good for not only choosing which games you play and how long, but also knowing how your brain will feel after you do them. Yeah, and that's why, again, we're not talking about regulating games or banning them or censoring them or anything else. I just want people to understand how it may be like examine your own habits like know this about yourself like your ability to tolerate problems or how you react to people on social media if you are 
if you're on Twitter, which I think at this point, like spending a lot of time on Twitter should just automatically be classified as a behavior disorder of some kind. Like I think you automatically <laughs> yeah. have some sort of an, an an illness that just where the only symptom is you're spending a lot of time on Twitter. But but ask yourself, are you doing it that same thing? Are you thinking of this political disagreement as a game? Are you going on Reddit and where your only mission is just like downvote the stuff you disagree with and upvote the stuff you agree with? And do you feel like you've won something? Like you've won a game of some kind? Like how much do those scores mean to you on if you have an Instagram or whatever, like those follower accounts or those likes on a post? How much does that mean to you? Like what... Are you assigning a value to that score that in reality it probably doesn't have in terms of what it actually does for your life? That's all I want is just awareness of it uh, because I do think it matters. And I think there's some people I think it has kind of ruined their life. People I know, like just based on seeing how they behave and see how they treat gaming and how they retreat from everything else. But other people are fine with it, just as other people, you know, can walk into a casino and have fun for a few hours and just leave. But I would not want a world where the moment you criticize a casino, everybody leaps to its defense and says, like, no, it's just harmless fun. It's like, no, be aware. Some people's brains will get addicted to gambling. Don't go in unless, you know, don't bet more than you can lose. Like, it seems like there should be, we should be able to talk about this in a common sense way that's neither alarmist or just a reflex like you know like oh it's one more person who just wants to take our games away you know i'm not going to take your games away because i'm not going to take my games away i'm not going to stop playing games <laughs> you're not going to stop me from playing games you're not you're not capable of of doing it suddenly the second amendment started popping in my head even though it's not for virtual guns i'm pretty sure I don't I think I understand that amendment as being militia related and other people disagree with me anyway. But it seems like somehow that would become the argument and we don't we don't want to take your freedom folks. You got it. Keep it. And the proper response to it is to be aware of ourselves and thoughtful and maybe kind to each other. Wouldn't that be radical? How about that? Kind in a way that right now social media does not encourage you to be because you can actually rack up a huge score on social media by being a dick. It's just you're a dick to the right people, right? And so people who hate those people will give you a positive score. So you can be just the worst person. And and like I don't know if, if China's social credit score accounts for this, but this is really the flaw in the Black Mirror episode is the people that utterly dominated would just be some of the biggest dicks in the world because it's like, yeah, but he is a dick to the libs or, or whoever our enemy is. And so we are rewarding that. So Twitter right now, you get the highest score by being dismissive, by being a dismissive jerk who has thinks of the, the quickest way to dismiss someone's argument or to dunk on them or to have the snarkiest reply that can fit in 200 some characters that's what you get rewarded for if you are someone who spends all of your time engaging with people or trying to calm people down or trying to say well actually the outrage headline doesn't get added if you read this study and this study and it's so boring and nobody's going to retweet that because it's just not fun so i think that would be my issue right now is that 
in some future where we're able to give people a score based on them not being a dick, which would be pretty cool. And I could see great. that working. But right now we're in an awkward phase where really all of the wrong behaviors are incentivized. And as we run into an in our industry, you would get a higher score spreading fake news than real news. We have gamified it, but in a way that rewards things that don't help you in the real world, like actually being able to discern lies from truth or being able to remain calm instead of jumping into an argument because people love to upvote the really badass response to an argument as put where the person who's able to take a breath and count to 10, they don't get any score at all. You don't get any reward from abstaining yeah. from a fight on social media. Oh no. Yeah. You're just sitting there then. Yeah. You don't get anything. See, I would create an app that like rewards you for just not, just not saying anything. Because that has tremendous value. The ability to just I think not jump into a conflict is one of the most valuable skills I wish I could master. I think the reward for that is getting to notice birds and trees and sunshine and stuff, honestly. Like looking up from my phone and seeing the world around me, that's, that's the app. And it's great. Do it, folks. Get into it. That's the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Parjan for taking a break from his rigorous Pong World Championship training to come on the show and blow my mind. He's just the best. And hey, you, why don't you be the best? Set your controller down and button mash our food newts, where you will, of course, find Jason's fantastic column that sparked all of this. You'll also find the studies we talked about today. You'll find information on the less well-known games we cited and more stuff that we drew on. My favorite reference is that fantastic Eurogamer expose on how gaming companies don't want to talk about their deal with gun manufacturers, while gun manufacturers super love talking about it. There's some very confident quotes in there. It's a good time. Also, there's three fun music links because I talked about music at the top of the show. And uh, here we go. First link is my favorite music video in a long time. Drake's video for his song, Nice For What. I feel like Nice For What is like if Hotline Bling became mature and respected ladies. It's very exciting. And good for Drake. Well done. Second link is to one of my favorite jazz albums. It is called The Sidewinder. It's by trumpet player Lee Morgan and his quintet. And in 1964, it became Blue Note Records' best-selling album ever up to that point. You should hear why. If you don't know jazz, it's like a good starting point that maybe not everybody would tell you. It's a starting point that isn't that one Miles Davis album. You know what I mean? And last music link, a new jazz album called Heaven and Earth by jazz innovator Kamasi Washington. He is the first jazz artist in a long time to break into the mainstream. And here's a, here's a spoiler for why. It's because he's really good. It's great. But enough jazz, let's talk podcasting plans. The Cracked Podcast is back at LA's UCB Sunset Theater on Saturday, September 15th with a whole new live episode. So mark your fall calendar now. It's probably got leaves on it. Isn't that nice? We've also got some other possible live dates in the works, and those dates would be in other cities if we can make it happen. I can't really talk about it yet or promise anything yet, so I'm sorry uh, it's not solid, but I'm hopeful about it. And I also encourage you to tweet at me. I'm at Alex Schmitty on Twitter. Tweet at me if your city ought to have a live Cracked podcast. I really, I track those asks in an actual spreadsheet. It is very nerdy looking, and maybe that nerdy sheet can get us going. You know what I mean? In the meantime, as far as this in-studio episode went, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Ryan Connor and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that is great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. 
That's right, social media, a thing that you might understand as a video game now. And I I think that's kind of exciting, you know, whole new view on the world. Life is interesting. You can find my Twitter account, as I said, at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got show dates and my newsletter and more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcasts. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.